to the Cory Doctorow podcast. This is Cory Doctorow. I've got a couple of talks coming up in the months to come. There's actually more than I'm going to announce now, but these are the ones that there's URLs for. On March the 31st, I'm going to be in Brussels for a very exciting one-day conference on antitrust put on by Charles River Associates called Competition and Regulation in Disrupted Times. And it's going to be kind of a who's who of enforcers and activists who work on this issue from around the world. And then April 19th and 20th, I'm going to keynote the Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise Conference in Philly. Both of those are live streamed, and I hope you can make it. This past week, I celebrated the official 20th anniversary of my joining the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I actually joined it 20 years and a couple of weeks ago, but for complicated reasons, my payroll didn't start until 20 years ago, I think Thursday. So it was fun. I sent a note out to the staff, and everyone said nice things, and one of them made me cry. It's been a good writing week, but a very busy time. So I've gotten lots of work done on Picks and Shovels. That's the second Marty Hench book, the prequel to Red Team Blues. And that is cruising along very well. And I would say I'm about halfway through Vigilance, which is the second of three Little Brother stories I'm writing after the Kickstarter for the Attack Surface audiobook. And I'm nearly done my EFF blog post on Jeffersonian content regulations. This has been a thing that I could normally knock out in an hour, but I've only had like five minutes at a time to work on over the last week. So it's taking a lot longer than I thought it would. But I'm very happy with it. It should be up this week anyway. If I sound a little muzzy, it's because I had a friend over for drinks and stayed up late last night. My wife and daughter are off skiing this weekend, and my hip replacement is not yet thoroughly bedded in enough for me to try skiing. It takes 12 weeks before you can do that, and I'm only at about the eight-week mark. So I was at home last night, and I invited over a friend that I've been meaning to see since it became safer to socialize, my old pal Tom Jennings, who is the creator of Fidonet and is a great vintage hardware expert who has been involved in all kinds of things, resurrecting old teletypes and rebuilding old Nash Ramblers. He brought his cool Nash Rambler over and just doing all kinds of fun, cool stuff. He's also the founder of something called Homocore, which was a very radical queer movement around the same time as Fidonet. We had a great conversation about all of those cool things from the heroic era of personal computing which were really relevant to this novel I'm writing. So it turned into kind of a research evening. Maybe I should uh, mark up the drinks that I served to uh, my research budget. I think I can probably just, uh, just pay that. What else is going on? Well, today's reading is a brief one. I'm going to spend three hours this afternoon on This Week in Tech, which is a thing I absolutely love doing, but three hours on a Sunday, my God, it's a big commitment. So it's left me a little short on time this weekend. And the thing I'm going to read is something called All Broadband Politics Are Local. And it was inspired by an interview I did with the Ono, Ross, and Kerry podcast, which I think I've mentioned on this podcast before. They're a great skeptical podcast. And they've done an episode about their experience going to a 5G conspiracy meeting or a series of these 5G conspiracy meetings. And one of the things that these 5G conspiracists said is that fiber is actually much better and that the 5G mobile companies are trying to suppress it. I think both of those things are actually true, and it prompted me to write to them and say, let's talk about how a lot of conspiracies have a kernel of truth. You know, I don't think that 5G will give you cancer, and I don't think that there's such a thing as electrosmog, and I don't think 5G is tracking microchips in your vaccines. But I do think, as you'll hear, that fiber is what we should really have, and that the mobile carriers are trying to prevent us from getting it so that they can extract rent from us. So that's this week's reading. It's this medium column called All Broadband Politics Are Local, and it comes from doctoro.medium.com.
We're the phone company. We don't have to care. Lily Tomlin. Even before the lockdown, we all hated our ISPs. Comcast routinely won Worst Company in America polls. AT&T was a trash fire of endless boondoggles and scandals. Verizon charged you $12 a month to rent a modem and also charged you $12 a month not to rent a modem. Everyone hated Frontier for its slow speeds, which were revealed to be the result of the company's practice of installing phone lines by tying them to trees with twine or draping them over shrubs. New York State ordered Charter Spectrum to leave the state and never come back. And then the pandemic struck, and terrible internet service became a matter of survival. It was how your kids went to school. It was how you visited the doctor, how you saw family, how you participated in civics and politics, and for those of us who are lucky enough to have remote-capable jobs, how you earned your living. The dismal state of the American telecoms industry, where monopolies divided up the country into non-competing, exclusive territories like Pope Alexander VI dividing up the New World, suddenly became a lot more important. The carriers didn't give a shit. The feds showered them in billions, buying up their junk bonds and writing fat checks for PPP loans. Telco execs paid themselves bonuses and helped out their shareholders with massive stock buybacks. But for workers and subscribers, it was a very different story. Charter Spectrum CEO Thomas Rutledge, an asshole, paid himself the highest salary of any U.S. CEO while refusing to pay for his technician's PPE or hand sanitizer. In lieu of hazard pay, the installers who come to our homes were given coupons to eat at restaurants that had shut down for the lockdown. Charter Spectrum's back office staff, who could have done their jobs from home, were required to go into the office lest they goof off on company time. Charter Spectrum's offices became super spreader sites. White-collar workers whose bosses would let them work from home struggled, thanks to the carrier's unwillingness to maintain or improve their infrastructure. In Hollywood and Burbank, film industry types were hamstrung by crawling broadband speeds that wouldn't let them download and upload their work files. Eventually, a 90-year-old local resident shamed AT&T into providing decent service by taking out an ad in the Wall Street Journal, shaming the company for its gouging and underinvestment. For the working poor, the essential workers, it was far worse. These Americans are likely to live in broadband deserts that follow the old redlining demarcations that were established by the racist housing policies of the previous century. These people, overwhelmingly black and brown, often had no broadband, which is how their kids ended up going to Zoom school from the parking lot of the local Taco Bell. Like I say, none of this is new. AT&T was able to go on abusing the American public for 68 years between its first antitrust investigation and its eventual breakup. Everyone hates their ISP for good reason. It's not like we don't know how to do broadband well. Hundreds of small communities set up their own fiber loops and either ran them themselves or set up wholesale operations that let multiple companies compete to provide service. These are the only people in America who like their ISPs. Well, along with those lucky few who can get their broadband from great local fiber providers like Ting. No wonder the telecoms lobby convinced more than 20 states to pass laws banning municipal fiber. Things are changing. Finally, there is political will to do something about telecoms monopolies. The pandemic, combined with the surging anti-monopoly movement, 
has turned universal fiber into a politically attainable goal. Note that I said universal fiber, not 5G, which requires extensive fiber and is also far slower than a fiber link, not satellite service, which gets slower every time it adds a customer. Fiber. Fiber is faster than anything else. A lot faster. Fiber systems have at least a 10,000, yes, 10,000 fold advantage over cable systems in terms of raw bandwidth. To hear telco apologists and Elon Musk fanboys tell it, running fiber to rural homes is impossible. It's as though the people who connected these homes to the electric grid, water mains, and telephone network did so using some vanished art lost to the mists of history. Bullshit. We know how to run fiber. Hell, the poorest county in Appalachia got fiber into every single home using a mule called Old Bub to get through the mountain passes. The result was an economic miracle with substantial rises in the county's median wage. The only thing preventing fiber from becoming economically viable is the impatience of telecom shareholders. Prior to its bankruptcy, Frontier concluded that they could clear a billion-dollar profit over a decade by connecting millions of families to fiber. But they left that billion on the table because the analysts who control the share price of telcos threatened to tank their stock if they made capital expenditures that took more than five years to turn a profit. With low-cost patient capital, fiber installations break even at densities as low as 2.5 people per square mile. All we need to get universal fiber is patient capital, and now we have it. The infrastructure bill allocated $65 billion to subsidize fiber rollouts across America, with some funds especially earmarked for underserved and rural areas. In California, these funds are supplemented by further billions in grants, a middle-mile network to join up county and town networks, as well as low-cost loans and technical assistance to help towns build and maintain their own fiber networks. The statutes that make this funding available are designed to avoid the capture that has turned previous efforts to create universal fiber access into expensive boondoggles that enrich telco monopolists, like the time we gave $45 billion in public funds to telcos and they wasted it running obsolete copper wire to rural homes. The federal project of getting America truly online with symmetrical universal gigabit plus fiber is part of a long tradition The federal government built the country's electric and telephone system by sending grants, loans, and expertise to rural co-ops, many of which are still around today. The Appalachian Org that got old bub to wire up every mountain pass is a co-op that was originally founded as part of the New Deal electrification push. But the federal government can only do so much. Most of the fiber subsidy is in the form of grants to states, who have to accept that money and use it. States whose leadership has been captured by telco monopolists are going to be under enormous pressure to turn down broadband funds and leave their people with 20th century tin cannon string copper networks. We need to counter that pressure. Residents of every state need to call their state legislatures and demand participation in this universal broadband. Despite GOP rhetoric about keeping government out of broadband, every broadband provider is absolutely dependent on federal, state, and local handouts for its existence. What's more, the towns with municipal fiber swing both Democrat and Republican, and they all rhapsodize about the service. 
In states like California, where the state government is providing low-cost loans and grants to towns and counties, these local governments need to get an earful from their constituents about the need to take up the state on its offer. The good news is that state and local legislators are far more responsive to constituent pressure than members of the federal Congress and Senate. A few minutes with your search engine will turn up the time and Zoom link for your next town hall meeting. These all have five-minute public comment periods. Calling up and giving your local government an earful about the economic and political benefits of kicking out the blood-sucking monopolists and replacing them with well-run fiber will make a difference, especially if you follow it up with emails to each councillor. This is one of those rare moments where individual action can make a huge lasting difference. All of the pieces are coming together for a new broadband future for the nation, one where public provision and management ends decades of gouging, underinvestment, and naked contempt from the universally loathed and loathsome telecom sector. All right, well, thank you very much. And for those of you like me who have family in Russia and Ukraine, I extend my solidarity and good wishes to you. And for those people in Russia and Ukraine in harm's way, I also extend my good wishes and my wishes for your safety and for the end of this horrible, stupid conflict as soon as possible. I hope you have a great week and I'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.